What's going on, boys and girls? And welcome to the 95th edition of the Chronicles of Podcast. And as you can tell, I don't sound very well at the moment. And here is Jamie to explain. Yes, let's save Tom's poor little voice. Tom has had some emergency dental surgery, so he sounds like that. He's now gained a lisp. So we're not going to have a proper show this week. Um, we're just going to release this incredible interview that you're about to hear with the wonderful Craig Wedron. So please, everybody enjoy, bear with us. And we'll be back to full speed as soon as we can. This man permitted. Sorry. Oh, we love him. Send him all some loves and hugs and kisses. Anyway, hit it. Hey there. You're about to enjoy the Chronicles of Tom and Jamie. Hi everyone. I'm Kevin Mann. Hey guys. My name's Annabelle Knight. Hello, this is Becky Baldwin. Hello, I'm Chesney. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Brayden from Say We Can Fly. Hi, my name's Craig Wedren. Oh boy, what do I do? What don't I do? I do a lot of music. That's mostly what I do. And uh, you can hear all about it today on the Chronicles of Podcast with Tom and Jamie. Enjoy. That was a Backstreet Boys song. Now that song, I'm really enjoying, but... Boys and girls, put your hands together as we bring you the Chronicles of Craig Wedroom. Uh, Jamie, do you think we should bring that piece in? Oh, I think we definitely should bring in that little piece. Welcome to the Chronicles of Craig Wedroom. Craig Wedron is a singer, songwriter, musician, and composer, starting his career in incredible Shudder to Think with tons of incredible studio albums, touring the world with the likes of Smashing Pumpkins and Pearl Jam. And that's not enough, ladies and gentlemen. He did all that and he thought, you know what, I'm going to keep going. And he became an incredible composer for movies, TV, all over the world, including shows like Bones. He did Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. He wrote The Greatest Song in School of Rock. You'll find out all more about that. And of course, the most thing he's most known before and currently known for is the theme tune to the incredible hit show, Yellow Jackets. Absolutely. This is a wonderful conversation. And I think you're all going to absolutely love it as much as we did. It's absolutely incredible. Um, and I second everything Jamie said. So, Jamie. Yes, sir. Any final words at all? Just a massive thank you to our wonderful guest for taking his time out of his day to talk to us. Absolutely. Craig, thank you so much for being such a hero. We really appreciate it. And we hope that you guys enjoy as well. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, interviewing this week, it's Craig Wedron. Oh, nice. You guys have a, a clever matching backdrops. <laughs> oh, too kind, sir. Thank you very yeah, much. You have a, a delicious range of guitars. So <laughs> You know, I had to get them off the floor. Uh, I don't love that it looks like Guitar Center on my wall, but I do love that they're <laughs> no longer um, taking up all, gobbling up all the floor space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, which, so this is a this is a, a Yamaha acoustic. It's very lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a little like... Uh, <laughs> you're, are you at one of those standing desks? I am at a standing desk. Yeah, it um, 
it used to work better because when when I uh, so my my old assistant, she's not old, she's young, but my former assistant, <laughs> um, after she learned uh, through working with me that who the fuck would want to be an assistant, um, became <laughs> became a um, like a, a designer. So she knew exactly all the ways um, that my studio sucked and what it needed. And so she designed this beautiful studio you see now, including this gorgeous custom standing desk that is great in every way, except it can't really hold the weight of my keyboard. So um, it used to really go up and down, like with the keyboard and everything. And now it kind of has a much more limited range. Oh. Um, yeah, it requires, it, it's sort of a manual standing desk, but I still love it. And I, I definitely prefer standing. No, that's right. You've got all that freedom to move around and, you know, I suppose if you, I suppose if you speak with your hands and you're very, you know, yeah, 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 uh, exactly. It's that sort of thing. So you, you're not going to knock anything. You're not going to fall off anything. It's like, yes, yeah, lovely. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to fall off the side of the chair. <laughs> um, we, I figure we, we spend so much time and energy as toddlers learning how to stand, right? We should really take advantage of it for as long as, as our um, arthritis allows. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was just I was just in Cleveland visiting my family and like everybody's bodies are just so fucked up. I was like, oh I'm gonna stand for as long as I can. <laughs> I mean they are obviously there's a lot of Browns fans there, so that makes sense. What'd you say about a Brown sunset? No, I was in the Brown they're, they're all Browns fans over there, aren't they? So that 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 oh, oh. made makes perfect sense. So huge, huge Browns fans, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's just everybody's just sitting in the chair. They've all given up. <laughs> like fuck, I'm done standing. Yeah, kind of bottom of the division every year. What's the fucking point anymore? <laughs> no, exactly. Poor guys. Oh, Deshaun Watson. No, never mind. Yeah, well, then, oh, oh. <laughs> are, are you guys American football guys? I definitely am. I have I been know, for years. I'm a big uh, I'm a big Steelers fan, so that's why oh, I watch right the Browns. <laughs> why? Who are you? Uh, Ravens? No, I'm not. I'm I'm a Browns guy because I'm originally I, I spent oh. my formative years in Cleveland, but, oh, but I okay, I don't really follow it. It's just in my heart. It's like ingrained. Okay. My mom put it in my cereal and the meatloaf, <laughs> and so I love the Browns. <laughs> Oh fair. Well, uh, um, you might. This season will be average. This is going to be the one. <laughs> this is the one. <laughs> It'll be all right, Craig. It'll yeah, be all right. It'll be great. <laughs> Mind you, we're we're like insanely optimistic. So I think we're going to be like, oh my god, this is it. We're, you know, Pickett's going to have a great second season. And ah, oh, okay, and if yeah, eight yeah. and eight, that's yeah. that's fine. That's or why eight and nine now, whatever it is now. That's why I chose music, because you can depend on those cats to disappoint you every time. You sort of root <laughs> for it. You're like, oh, it turns out you're a horrible person. I love your songs, though. <laughs> oh, um, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, Craig, just a quick rundown. Um, we're going to do, Jamie's going to do a very nice introduction for you, just to like bring everybody into the, into the we've already started, but we'd like to do an introduction anyway. Just to bring everybody in and whatnot makes me feel better. So, well, look at it. Where otherwise it's like you don't know. Did it start? Is anything started? Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> haven't been announced yet. We... I'm picturing childbirth. It's like, you know, <laughs> like a, it's like a sweet sixteen. Like I'm taking my son later today to. Do you know what a quinceanera is? A what? Quinceanera. Nope. Um. Uh, I think it. I think it's a Mexican thing. When when a Mexican girl turns fifteen, it's sort of like a coming out cotillion type situation. Okay. It's like you know you announce you announce your womanhood. It's like a bar mitzvah if you're Jewish, and um, a sweet sixteen. And uh, you know, I mean, none of us were announced. So are are we really alive? Even <laughs> are we even here? Is this yeah, happening yeah. right now? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Wonderful. I shall do my little introduction and then we will bombard you with questions if that sounds okay, okay to you, sir. Yep, sounds great. Ladies and gentlemen, this week we bring you a wonderful guest who has used his musical talents to spin many a musical plate. Whether to be with his former band Shudder to Think, his solo career, or creating scores for some of the biggest hits in TV and film like Yellow Jackets, School of Rock, Glow, Role Models, and many more. Is there anything this man can't do? I shudder to think. Boys and girls, put your hands together as we bring you the Chronicles of Craig Wedron. I'm just glad you didn't hold back on that. You gotta throw him the punk. I couldn't resist. Gotta throw him the punk. He looks so disappointed in me. I didn't know what I was saying. No, no, man after my own heart. I was like, am I proud? or I I don't really know where I sit on this fence right now. That's how how I feel um, about my um, little punny, punny muscles. (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, my friends, my friends tease me, but they love it, but they hate it, but they love it, but I can't help it. Yeah. Like, uh, old, no, I'm like an old Jewish man, like Borscht Belt thing that I can't get rid of. Like a vestigial comedy <laughs> tale. It's like everyone hates dad jokes, but nobody hates them. Everybody like, loves it, a dad joke. Everyone I mean, loves a dad joke. There's a lot of the Venn diagram of puns and dad jokes. It's a lot of crossover. <laughs> But I suppose we should we should get to the the hard hitting shit straight away, Craig. How was oh, your pandemic? How was your pandemic season? How have the last few years been for you? Well, I mean, I I, I don't want to be uh, uh, glib or light about it, but but, but mine was kind of great because I made a couple records and I got to hang out with my family. I I for me it was very productive and very peaceful. Um, but I, I um at what cost? in in the bigger picture um as i mentioned before we have a a 15 year old son and so he you know it was about 11 to 13 for him and those are pretty vital social years Mm. and we're definitely all seeing the um sort of i don't don't know what you would call it the the you know the little black the little black that that blackout zone um took its toll just in terms of feeling, I would say, and, and this is fresh in my mind because he and I were discussing it this morning, um, feeling comfortable with discomfort socially, mm. which is something you kind of learn at that age. You're like, oh, I feel uncomfortable. It's okay. And it's all going to be okay. This is just what it means to be alive. Um, they kind of missed that. And so um, there's, there's, there's not a lot of leather, mm. you know? Mm. Um, that said, relative to a lot of people, particularly here in Los Angeles that we're seeing, I mean, the the the, the homelessness, the 
tent encampments, the closures of restaurants and and I mean literally all business um, have been kind of devastating and and palpable. Uh, so you know it was a mixed bag. We were having one experience with them looking out the window and seeing sort of the reality of it for a lot of people, which was which was gnarly. Um, but creatively, it was it was productive for me. No, that's great. And, I, and I liked my family, and so it was you know so it was it was lovely to get to <laughs> get to hang out. My my dad died during the pandemic, which was heartbreaking, but also um, very peaceful. We didn't have to. He lived in Miami, Florida. We didn't have to like run to Miami and deal with the business of death which is the opposite of maybe what we like and need to grieve naturally. Mm. And so I was able to just sit in the garden and, and write or meditate or play guitar. And that was kind of a gift. You know, so it was a, it was a strange mixed bag. How was your guys' pandemic? It was, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> I moved countries. I, I moved from England to Wales. Um, uh-huh. My my relationship broke down um, for the best, right. though. For nah, no, 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 definitely for the best. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hundred, a hundred and fifty thousand percent. Yeah. Got it. Um, did you I'm see? So, did you see that freight train coming before pandemic, or was it only once? It had just begun. The pandemic uh-huh. had literally just. We just we moved in together. Uh huh. Uh, and then like it's just the pandemic hit and I went, oh, you're not a very nice person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, oh. think that, I mean, it was a real litmus test for relationships, right? Yes. Because a lot of us, um, you know, not everybody is meant to stare each other square in the face for two and a half years straight. No, well, exactly. Not that, not that that's the criteria for a good relationship. Like some relationships <laughs> should not be like that and function perfectly well. But I feel, I, I, I think, I think there was a lot of that. People were just like, oh, it turns out I actually like you or, oh, it turns out I actually don't like you. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a little blessing in a way, but not for everybody, obviously, the people that were dying from it and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. government governments and like states over there and stuff just going, hmm um yeah. do your own thing i guess like yeah, we'll was... shut that but you can, you can go outside but don't go for a walk but go outside and work outside but work inside but then we'll open this and close that it was it, it was a mess and, and and i can understand it being a mess for let's say six months but then the real mess started which was that you know and maybe this is just a human thing and certainly like an institutional governmental issue that nobody's willing to admit that they're wrong or, <laughs> yeah. or 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 change course d- despite the you know uh, the the dynamic data and mm, facts yeah. that were coming in and still um that that seemed like a big achilles heel worldwide for that whole thing it's like no actually we know something different now than we did a few months ago and we should act on that information and then if that changes we can change again it's okay Speaking of relationships, it's like sort of the key to a healthy long-term relationship, right? Is to is to admit fault and pivot, like flexibility. But there, there it didn't feel like there was a lot of that. 
There's a lot, lot of, lot of, lot of pride and a lot of, of decision. It seemed like there were a lot of decisions being made based on fear of public fear. And it was like, look, everybody's scared. Everybody's going to be scared. It's fine. Like, um, but, but we're not so good at that. No, and I, I actually feel people would respect it more if governments turn around and go, we've never faced anything like this before. We tried yeah. that. It didn't work. Sorry yeah. about that. Let's try this instead. <laughs> exactly. Right. And isn't that, isn't that, you know, going back to relationships, that's sort of what a relationship is. Okay. We tried that. That didn't work. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to behave differently now. Let's see if that works. Oh, you still hate me? Okay, let me try this. <laughs> uh, right, Craig, take us back, sir, to the days of young Master Wedron. What did you originally want to be when you were growing up? Was it always music for you or something completely different, like pro wrestler? I don't know. Well, going going back to Cleveland, you know, we, we it was sports and music. Um, and going back to the Cleveland Browns, it wasn't going to be sports. So I, it was only music. <laughs> I was about I was about nine or so when I realized that the band Kiss and the man Elton John were um, actually just super dorks dressed up as superheroes playing my favorite songs. And once I made that connection that they weren't actual superheroes, but they were um, super dorks, I could really uh, see a future for myself. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was obsessed, I was obsessed with music and the radio. I came from I came from a a big music loving family, not a big music making family. But you know, there were some nice voices in my family, and and a lot of um, uh, you know, drive around with my grandfather, and he would play the local classical station and the and the local opera station, and run everything down for me. And I would ride around with my mom. And she was like a sponge for um, for whatever was on the radio, and 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 had like a nice little early seventies divorcee record collection: Carol King, Elton John, Jim Croce, The Doors, The Beatles. So there was just a there was just a solid foundation of mostly very melodic vocal based music. You know, so so for instance, we weren't a a Dylan family. We were a Simon and Garfunkel family. Okay. You know, so it was more like Madrigal than um, uh, gnarly and harsh. Um, but as I started growing up, it became clear that I liked it a little gnarly and harsh, and it sort of started with Black Sabbath and Kiss and. You know, at the same time as the Bee Gees and Bay City Rollers and whatever else was on the radio. Um, so once I, and I was obsessed with superheroes. So once I put it all, and, and monsters, vampires, superheroes, heavy music. So once I put it all together, um, it was just a big, ugly, loud light bulb. And there was no turning back. And so I announced to my family when I was nine or 10 that I was going to be a rock star. And they all looked aghast and said, <laughs> we support the arts. We are not artists. And, you know, in retrospect, I was like, well, if you, if you, um, if you gamble at that table long enough, 
<laughs> an artist is going to pop out. So, and there's been no turning back. I mean, I, I'm, I'm grateful every single day that I get to walk in here and, you know, make whatever comes out on a Friday or a Tuesday. You're saying they're nine years old, you turn around to your family and like, I want to be a rock star. Mm -hmm. What was that point, though, that you went, I need to do this. I need to be out there making music. This needs to be what I dedicate my life to. Was it a certain song or was it just a culmination of lots of different things? I really think it was Kiss. I was so obsessed with Kiss. And um, I still feel like a lot of those early Kiss records just had such great, almost bubblegum, Mm. hard rock songwriting and that they got to dress up breathe fire get the girl and then move on i mean what could be more appealing to uh you know a sort of 70s child of divorce obsessed with fantasy and the radio um i mean although you know, I had plenty of other friends with the same story and, and they all uh, took different paths. So I, I'm not sure what it was. I always had, uh, a, I, I was a good mimic when I was little. I didn't quite realize it, but I could really imitate every voice that I heard on the radio and every little breath and nuance and all the things that weren't the main part of the song all got in there and I didn't realize until later that that wasn't something that everybody had but I think hmm. it it sort of shot me off in a direction um and then once I started becoming girl crazy at around age 12 but not as good at playing any instruments as some of my classmates so there was the guitar prodigy Scott Harbert but I wasn't that good at guitar and you know matt ballow had a bass i didn't have a bass um jeff golenberg had a had a drum kit and a pa system so you know i the the, the only role that was left was being a singer which suited me i was very um i was sort of an early bloomer so mm. i was pretty much full grown by the time i was 12 and really liked attention and was into theater and was girl crazy and could imitate the voices on the radio. So it 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 all worked out. And that was at the same time that punk and, and new wave were were really hitting, or or I should say it was it, it was late because we were young, right? I was born in 1969. So when the kind of first wave was hitting, I would have been too young to know about it. Plus, we were living in Cleveland. So things took longer to get there. You had to know somebody who knew somebody who who had the records. Um, but by 19, I would say like, I would say 1979 was when so-called new wave, for lack of a better word, began trickling into the radio where you would hear Blondie in the cars and, you know, even a little bit of rap. You would hear Rapper's Delight, The Knack, the police so it was clear there was some new sound happening even though it was the pop end of that new sound and it was sort of like classic rock which cleveland was like a very classic rock like working class rock mm. 
town, um, it was starting to turn into this thing that felt like something that was ours, mine and my friends. And then by 1982, when Murmur by R.E.M. came out and, you know, Joy Division had made it over to Cleveland and, you know, Combat Rock by by The Clash came out. It was, you know, it was all over. I mean, it was, we were just obsessed. And, um, you know, like you do when you're a teenager, then we all became snobs and started, <laughs> you know, dressing in very drab, dark clothing and playing Echo and the Bunnymen covers. Early Echo, obviously. <laughs> yeah. It's so true, though, especially with the, like, you know, because we grew up in the 90s, we're born not, like, late 80s, aren't we, Jay? Yeah. So, like... When we became teenagers, it was like Lip Biscuit, Lincoln Park, mm-hmm. Food Fighters, Papa Roach, that sort of thing, Lip Biscuit. Yeah. But then you secretly be like, oh, there's a Backstreet Boys song. Now that song, yeah. it, I'm really <laughs> enjoying, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say a word. <laughs> I, was re- I was really lucky because by that point, my generation was not, the, the sort of Gen Xers were not feeling the new metal pop punk thing of the, you know, the the like Lip Biscuit. Yeah really i actually like them biscuit of the the early aughts so we had come full circle and could fully embrace our inner um boy band <laughs> you know so it was like full backstreet full britney <laughs> like bring it i don't you're saying there like how so many different artists so many different genres like inspire you especially as you're growing up and they're all like, seeping and you can tell that in your music and you know you're saying you started your career great success with shudder to think touring with huge bands like smashing pumpkins and pearl jam on it mm-hmm. what was that foot in the door moment for you guys or was it a certain song that hit it big or was it just slowly chipping away it was slowly chipping away so i moved from cleveland to washington dc when i was 16 years old my dad was living in dc and i had had it with cleveland it was in the 80s it was very uh conservative um not necessarily politically i came from pretty much like you know liberal jewish family but um and there was a lot of that but it it was just culturally very conservative so i liked to dress the way i liked to dress and i always had you know what in my opinion was a nice well-balanced masculine and feminine side and i would get my ass kicked when when we were you know if i would go to a party and um it, it was like and i suppose this is a, a fairly common teenage thing i wanted the attention but i didn't want the attention mm. um i wanted to be seen and kind of peacock around but i didn't really want to get the shit beat out of me for it and um and then there was some home stuff going on so i moved to washington dc and obviously Washington had this insane underground and punk rock scene happening of which we knew a little being from Cleveland. We knew about Minor Threat, maybe Rites of Spring. Mm, I had Bad Brains on an Alternative Tentacles compilation that I loved, the song Pay to Come, which I thought was incredible. But I didn't really quite get it or know what was going on, except I would go visit my dad sometimes. And there were all these, you know, fairly young, very well-educated, politically aware 
and musically ferocious um, punk kids running around. And so I was very intimidated by that because they seemed a lot cooler and more in the know than I was. Um, and so I would just literally go up to people. Like I remember visiting my dad in DC when I was 12 and going to like the punk record store. This was right at the beginning of knowing that there was this new kind of music that I was really into or that was very exciting to me. And I would just kind of steal myself and risk embarrassment and, you know, walk, ask the nicest looking person working at the checkout counter. Um, excuse me, do you have any punk cassettes? And <laughs> usually they were super sweet. Here's a dead Kennedy's cassette son. And here, why don't you try this? Here's a band called X. They're from Los Angeles. And then I would bring them home to Cleveland and, and we would all obsess over it. So by the time I moved to DC when I was 16, I was aware there was some stuff going on, but it was very patchy. And I got there right at the end of what was called Revolution Summer, which was the birth of the first wave of what came to be known as emo. Mm. Although it wasn't the melodic kind, it was just that really, again, this very energetically balanced kind of punk where there were girls in the audience and there were girls in the bands and the lyrics were more poetic and less aggro I guess more surreal in a way so it was almost proto-psychedelic and um, that really suited me so when I got to Washington I started auditioning for bands and I would join bands and get kicked out of bands because I sang kind of weird because I had been coming from this um, cover band in part background where I would be singing a Journey song and a Car song and a Sex Pistols song and a Black Sabbath song and a Susie song. So so the my vocal tics were atypical for the DC punk scene. But most of the bands were like, so it was a strange fit. And um, when a friend of mine at school passed me a cassette of her boyfriend's punk band that had just, whose, whose singer had just uh, graduated high school and was going to college, they needed a singer. So I joined this band that then became Shudder to Think. That was 1986. It was a very strange fit at first, but we could tell even just from our first rehearsal together, even though we weren't quite sure if I wasn't sure if I liked their music, they weren't sure if they liked my singing style. There was some, there were these moments that were really unique and powerful when I was just re-singing in my own style, the songs that they had written with their more traditional singer who had just gone off to college and so we decided to stick with it and and pretty quickly like within six months we we're like whoa this is really um its own deal which then led us very well gradually but ultimately very fully into exploring our own style of music in part because even though we we're all very different personalities we all agreed we all valued originality and so once we started hearing that sort of 
originality in the music we were making, even if Chris, the guitar player, was you know bringing something that was almost more of a classic rock progression, but played in a pretty slashy punk way. And our drummer, who was older, had almost jazz chops, Mike. And Stu, the bass player, was more of like a DC, almost emo punk bass player where he was playing like chords on his bass almost. Um, even though we were all kind of coming from different places, we all agreed that if we could do something unique and original and special, that that was paramount. And so, so there was an all for one, one for all commitment to um, kind of mining our own territory. It took a couple years before people kind of came around to it. Cause at first, um, you know, we, we, we knew people from the discord record scene, which was the, you know, the, the sort of central punk label and community in DC, not the only one, but the kind of the biggest one. And, um, but, but we weren't part of it very slowly and gradually because our music almost from the beginning was pretty psychedelic. My lyrics were were much more dream logic. The the melodies that I liked kind of harkened back a little bit. There was something very melty about what we were doing, even though it was kind of hard and fast. And gradually, after a couple of years, um, people like we realized we we had our own really unique audience who was coming to all of our shows. It wasn't you couldn't quite pin it down. Like it wasn't this crew or that crew or this subgenre or that one. It was just, you know, the 5% of people who, when we were playing shows opening for bigger bands, didn't hate us, they would come to our next show. And gradually it it, it sort of became its own its own um little little cult. And it and it grew from there. So 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 that, that's the very long answer to your question, um, which is that it was a very slow chipping away for us through through till the bitter end. We love it. We we love it when people when you just talk because oh, okay, they listen cool. to us <laughs> jab, jabber for an hour. So if you want, <laughs> honestly, Craig, it's all good. So do you feel then that you sort of created your own genre in a way? I mean, I I don't know. Um, I don't. I hope I like to think that unique bands can't create a genre because it's um, unique ingredients, right? So I hear things when I listen to Shudder to Think. I hear the bands that we were listening to, whether it was, you know, Slint or My Bloody Valentine or Rites of Spring or Bad Brains. But cumulatively, I, I don't know how one would imitate us because it was sort of just a strange brew of individuals um that said you know occasionally i'll hear a band or somebody will send me something and say oh this reminds me of shutter to think and i can hear pieces of it in there um but i don't know i mean what do you think I, you know it's very hard to see oneself clearly in the mirror it sort of requires somebody describing to you what you look like, <laughs> if that makes sense. So, I, I, so it's probably a better question for you. I get excited what you're saying because, you know, I was listening 
to should have think early and i was like this is very unique I, there's only one band that came to mind that sounded similar and they came out afterwards so clearly they were inspired by you and that was smashing pumpkins so, oh that's interesting that's fascinating to me that's the only source band that's similarish sounded mm-hmm. came to me. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I can kind of see where that inspired. And I think I even saw somewhere saying, saying Smashing Pumpkins were inspired by. I was like, oh, that oh that's really cool. I, I, <laughs> to, be, to be totally honest, I wasn't even aware of that, despite the fact that we toured together in our pals. Um, but that does make sense. They were psychedelic mm. and heavy. And there was punk influence, but there was also, you know, it, it was sort of extreme mel- melodicism. And both of us kind of have those slightly nasally Midwestern <laughs> lilts. <laughs> it's the Cleveland-Chicago connection. <laughs> but it, it's heartbreaking to hear that Shudder to Think, and most importantly, yourself, got very much so grounded when you were unfortunately diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. How old were you when that happened? I was 26, I believe. It was during promotion for Pony Express record, which was our first major label record. And one of my favorite Shutter to Think records. Um, Certainly the one that, for for me, Pony Express record and our final Discord record, Get Your Goat, most fully represent my songwriting sensibility that was kind of when i came into my own like contributing lots of the music doing a lot of the writing in the band um it was very stressful the promotion of that record mostly because i was i i can only speak for myself but I was a real perfectionist and I was very, very hard on myself and very ambitious and my dreams and goals and expectations for that record were um, lofty. And I was not in retrospect healthy. I just, I mean, not in any kind, it wasn't like drugs or an alcohol. It was just, the internal monologue or dialogue or whatever you want to call it was just vicious. Um, I was so hard on myself and I was exhausted and the album didn't do as well as the label wanted it to or needed it to. Um, you know, especially at the time, the record business was so big and there's so much money tied up in it that you really, really needed to sell X amount of records in order to justify um, their funding the next record. And we, you know, even though the record did fairly well and, um, you know, we had kind of a minor hit off of it in X French t-shirt, it it didn't quite cut it. And um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I took it very personally, but I was very hard on myself um and it was a kind of overheated engine that i'd been running since i was a teenager in terms of career and ambition and music and um i knew it was something that i needed to resolve or contend with or correct but I was busy. I was like, hey, I'll deal with that later. 
and my, my I had these strange rashes all over my body. The first time I was living with um, a friend of mine and a friend of the band, Jesse Parrots, who's a director and producer, but it, at, at the time was just starting to direct videos for um, Foo Fighters and us and a whole bunch of other bands. But he had been in the in the band Lemonheads. And we were roommates at the time. And we thought I had scabies. I'd gone to a dermatologist who misdiagnosed my skin rash as scabies. And I remember Jesse being so fucking pissed at me because we had to throw out all the furniture and get everything deep clean because he thought that I was like a, you know, a dirty, just a dirty, nasty rocker with scabies. Um, and then it turned out about six months later, I had my, my, I, my girlfriend and I were in a breakup spell when Jesse and I were living together and we got back together and moved back in with my girlfriend and the skin rashes started getting worse. And I was itching so badly at a certain point that we had like a rotation of of ice packs in the freezer that I would put under my armpits and behind my legs just so I could sleep for like 20 minutes because cold nullifies itching mm. and heat makes you itch more. And I was itching so badly that I couldn't sleep. So finally I went to the doctor again and he took one look at me and said i think you have hodgkin's disease which is cancer and if you have to have cancer this is the kind you want because we know how to get rid of it but the way that we get rid of it is we just bombard your body with literally nuclear medicine it so happened that nathan the guitar player in shutter to think who at the time who um was one of my best friends. His father was the head of nuclear medicine at um, Sloan Kettering in New York. And so they were able to like really get me in. I, I, I mean, it was aside from the fact of cancer, um, there were so many miracles in terms of my treatment. And the band was really splintering at that point. We're actually starting to write our next record, 50,000 BC, um, which at first was very much stylistically a follow-up to um pony express record at least in terms of the style of stuff i was bringing in but nobody it was like i had lost the room you know like mm -hmm. nobody in the band was feeling it and you know i i as you can tell by and as is the case for any film and tv composer you know you need to serve the project and make sure everybody's in love with the music and so i was starting to really rewrite a lot of the music that i was bringing in so that particularly nathan and and stewart and i obviously um would maybe get excited again um i think the reason we were all just so disappointed uh that pony express record hadn't you know achieve full world domination but um so all of that was sort of 
the backdrop um, for my diagnosis. And when I was diagnosed, it really pulled us back together because we're very much a family. I mean, we all love each other a lot. And um, it was a very special band. And I wouldn't say we had forgotten that, but we were in sort of a, a, a dark patch, like a little black ice. And my diagnosis, as horrible as it was, and I'm not trying to make light of it or be Pollyannish about it, but it did remind us what was important. Um, and it ground things to a halt. So we just kind of really shut down promotional operations, like anything that that required more than a couple hours of energy and just focused on my getting well again and writing these new songs for our next record. And, and that was the point at which we, we started shifting our focus um, toward movies. Because I think we knew we, we weren't really happy touring all the time and doing the sort of traditional album promotional cycle. There was so much else that we were interested in and that we want to do creatively and we were all movie buffs and movie nerds. So so it seemed like, and, and a lot of our, our friends who were directors were starting to make their first project. So, so it was uh, fortuitous in that respect, but awful. And um, literally, it, it was painful in every way. Yeah. So, I'm so sorry to hear you had to go through that. <laughs> Thanks. But I mean, you know, here I am. Although, and I'm sure they told me at the time, um they they radiated me here right so it was my chest neck and throat and when i was going through the the full bore radiation which was like there's six months of six months of chemotherapy and then one month of radiation every single day and they didn't know if i was going to be able to sing again and in and they didn't know if one day i would just wake up and not be able to sing so there's a real energy, particularly to the vo to to my vocal performances on Fifty Thousand BC, that you can hear this kind of like um, fire engine uh, raging, which is pretty interesting because it's you know kind of a poppy record, or we're starting to play with more traditional genres on that record, but the but the vocals have a kind of intensity to it, I think because I was. Um, and we all were going through that then. And then 20 years later, when uh, in 2018, I had a massive heart attack, which I think was related to the, the radiated regions. Because um, again, because... I, I'm a really healthy guy and and there there was certainly no reason except for, you know, family history, cholesterol, DNA stuff. There's no reason for me to have a heart attack, except that um, you know, radiation and chemotherapy is essentially poison and it has these it can have these very long-term deleterious effects on on tissue um so it's sort of a story that um has a few chapters to it but i'm doing great now. Yeah. i got that 
I do my research. This uh, that didn't come up anywhere. That's all. Yeah, I know. Wait, what? <laughs> well, I, 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 um, you know, there wasn't really any. I, I mean, I'm totally comfortable talking about it, but as opposed to the cancer thing, where which happened to happen when Shutter Think was doing a lot of publicity, so it was naturally something we were talking about. Um, now I'm my day job is a composer so there's there's not a lot of occasion to talk about what's going on you know about like the the health drama yeah it makes sense. but it was um can, it was it was deep i can imagine you just you obviously having said how it's gonna be like i need to update my wikipedia i must update it i must let them know <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i can't i can't imagine that's the person that came into your head to be honest with you um <laughs> I can't imagine that's the first thing that ever came, that came straight into your head. You know, like, oh my god, I, I must tell the people. They must yeah, know. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we established at the start of this: if you don't announce it, it doesn't happen. So uh, this is true. Yeah, that's right. Well, like you said, you made the transition from music to TV and film. Um, was it just for the love of movies that made you want to make the you know, you said that obviously things are breaking down a little bit and whatnot. So was it a prime time to go, do you know what? Fuck this. I think I'm going to go and do what I really want to go and do now and make music for, for movie and TV. We, we uh, uh, Nathan and I had always wanted to do both. Even when we were teenagers and going over to my dad's apartment and hang out in my bedroom after school doing like experimental four track recordings there was always this thing in our mind that it would be really, really cool to make music for movies. I went to NYU with some filmmaker friends of mine, um, one in particular, David Wayne, who was my oldest bestie, one of my oldest besties from Cleveland. Um, he was in the film school and I was in the, the experimental theater school doing a lot of theater, but also a lot of sound design, sound installation, more like experimental, immersive sound thingies, um, which had a very filmic soundtracky aspect to it. Plus the fact that I was in Shutter to Think by that point, and you know, we actually had a record or two, which was very impressive to um, my my classmates, right? Because not a lot of 18 year olds had like records on discord and stuff like that. So um, David obviously fell in with like a big filmmaking and um, comedy crew in film school. And I fell in with this theater crew. But because of my band history, people would come to me and ask me to do soundtracks for their school projects. So I was doing it a little bit um, during college. And then we graduated and Shudder to Think became full time. And all of my friends from the film and comedy um, uh, wing uh, of NYU had started this group that became um, The State, who were this great comedy group that a sketch comedy group that um, got a deal with MTV and they needed music. So right around, they needed a theme song. They occasionally needed score for skits, sketches. And 
all of this was starting to happen right as Shutter to Think was getting big, but also starting to think about broadening into film and TV. And then, like I said, Jesse Peretz, who had been my roommate, was directing his first movie. He asked Shudder to Think if we wanted to, it was very low budget, like New York indie, late 90s. And one of the characters, one of the main characters in the movie had a collection of 45 singles in all different genres, like oldies. And so he asked us to write all of them, plus a little bit of score, like just background instrumental music. And that was really our, our first foray. And by that point, between the state and Jesse's first movie, and I think my having cancer and us really um, starting to think in a more kind of grown up adult way about how we wanted to be living, which is to say, we wanted to have uh, sustainable relationships and potentially families and, be a part of a consistent community rather than, you know, this sort of satellite that is constantly um, zooming in and out of tour schedule. Um, it, it just all, like the timing was great. And there was this whole new New York indie film scene happening. So we wound up doing music for um, Velvet Goldmine that Todd Haynes made. And we did the score for Lisa Cholodenko's first movie, which is called High Art. So it really set us up. And for a minute there, we were going to pivot as a band and continue to score for film and TV, make records when we wanted to, produce other people's records, write with other artists. But the that that brief little kind of honeymoon moment and not honeymoon whatever the 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 that nice little moment we had when I was sick and we all kind of banded together to finish 50,000 BC I think after 50,000 BC just didn't do anything and the label made it clear that they couldn't continue to invest in Shuttered Think if we you know weren't yeah. making hits um we were just tired we were tired of each other our friendships had eroded as happens and um and so nathan and i just continued to do exactly what we were going to what we were planning on doing with shutter to think just as solo artists now we're all friends again and it's all groovy it was just that you know that sad thing that happens at the end of so many bands and i think often in one's late 20s i love the fact that like you say you know you guys broke up he's like i'm gonna focus still doing this film and music tv and you're like do you know what i'm gonna let's keep this wedge and train rolling i'm gonna i'm gonna kick off a solo career at the same time and it was, and you smashed it because as a solo artist you went on tour with artists like foo fighters chris cornell and things like that yeah, which must have been amazing. But there's one of your solo records I saw a story about earlier, and I've got to pick your brains on this story. Yeah, sure. About the album Wand, uh -huh. and I saw an, a story about a Mexican market. Oh yeah, I'm so <laughs> glad you reminded me of that. I totally forgot. Wait, I'll I'll show you the one. Hang on, like <laughs> I've got to hear more about this. Yeah. So so what were we? <laughs> I'm. 
I don't I don't remember exactly what we were doing in Mexico my my wife and I I don't think we were married yet but we I think we were there for a wedding a friend's wedding and we went to this really cheap plastic crappy market um it was just toys and candy and whatever but there was this one table there that had these like shamanic handmade there's bone there's there there's bone like snake bones snake spine their furs their feathers there's snake skin here there's wood i, I want to say this is like ocelot fur or something and this guy was there who was clearly sort of a mystical cat who would travel around finding dead things he wouldn't kill anything but anything that was already dead he would turn into art pieces so there were necklaces and bracelets and earrings and strange rattles um and percussive instruments that had a whole lot of um freaky energy to them this was on the table and this was this would have been George W. Bush, right? So the, I, I think this was like pretty soon after 9-11 happened hmm. um, or within a few years after 9-11. It, it, it was still during um, George W. Bush's reign of weirdness. And, um, <laughs> I was, and, and, and I wanted to buy this and a few other items off of this guy's table. Meanwhile, there were Mexican police who were kicking him out of the flea market or whatever it was. Um, they weren't kicking out the people with the candy and the plastic crap, but this guy who was kind of rogue and a little freaky, they were trying to get him out of there. He was like scaring the kids or something, or he didn't have, he didn't have a, he didn't have a, what do you call it? A license. And so I'm trying to make a deal with this guy to buy this rattle and a couple earrings while he's packing up his things and the police are trying to push him out of there. He's telling me in broken English how he can't sell this to me because it must never get into the hands of the Bush administration. Right? And he and I and I was like, I, I swear to you, there's like literally absolutely no way that this is going to get in the hands of George Bush. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else I can do. But 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 have you know that we're on the same team, man? <laughs> like, I'm going to protect this from, you know, creepy criminals with all my might and so finally at the last minute as he was walking away um he sold it to me and then i wound up ooh, it's falling apart then i wound up making this album and a movie around it i didn't make the movie but i wrote the movie called wand which was basic it, it was basically about the um the power of this strange concoction and um keeping it out of the hands of the authorities so that's one someday you know what i have a feeling now that um ai is getting so ubiquitous that within the next couple of years we'll be able to make whole 
movies like like whole ai movies on the cheap and i'll be able to feed my script into an ai um an ai app and and maybe finally make the movie wand that's my awesome yeah Yeah. mental though absolutely so when obama took over after i'm assuming that it was okay to maybe and (laughs) i don't don't know yeah it's interesting i i I, I scored a I scored a documentary about um about the obama campaign um but i forgot i didn't make the connection and i would have somehow like gotten it into his hand (laughs) yeah yeah that would have been amazing it's like i wasn't going to the bush but (laughs) exactly now it's okay (laughs) (laughs) mexican guy just running and no no one in administration not that one (laughs) Barack just turns this like He-Man type, yeah. like character. Yeah, that would be incredible. <laughs> so I, I, we've, we've mentioned it. We probably should talk more about. It. Let's go into a bit more detail about your work in film and TV because the world of scoring has always fascinated me. So for those unaware, what exactly is a film score? Because a score and a soundtrack are very different things, aren't they? Yes. So. For instance, let's take Yellow Jackets as an example. That's a that's a, that's a good, um, very very clear line between the song side of it, the song soundtrack or whatever you want to call it, uh, where in Yellow Jackets they're using a lot of '90s music, so you'll hear Smashing Pumpkins and Radiohead and PJ Harvey and whatever else. Um, then throughout every episode, if you're listening for it there's background music in the case of yellow jackets it's often very loud and foregrounded the the score the so-called background music in yellow jackets is is pretty prominent relative to to most shows but there's a near constant score soundtrack happening in something like yellow jackets the trick and the main or one of the main differences between writing a song and composing background score is with us like songs we write they're meant to be front and center you you want uh the listener's attention you your our ears are drawn to a to the human voice so we we listen to the vocal we listen to the words um when you hear a song in a tv show or movie or something like yellow jackets you know it's it it feels almost like a like a music video um, as opposed to the background music, which is kind of invisibly or inaudibly sometimes really manipulating or um, helping solidify the dramatic and emotional intention of a specific scene. Um, in most movies, you'll notice or you'll notice or maybe you've noticed that you'll leave unless it's star wars or something you couldn't necessarily hum a bar of the score or even remember necessarily what it sounded like but it's doing its tricky little sneaky wand work on you the whole time um that's kind of the main difference and uh the score is created um 
is is custom created to fit the shape of the show or the movie or the scene whereas a song you'll um edit the scene around a song when we're composing the score we'll get an edit of the episode or of the movie and construct the music around um, a fixed edit so they're sort of inversions of each other in a way will you will you get much notes from the director filmmaker what do you want to say about what sort of feeling they're going with or is it entirely here's the scene come up with what you can get or is it different it, it really it really depends on the project with yellow jackets at this point they really trust us and so we just kind of go nuts and uh, but what you'll do you'll have what's called a spotting session at the beginning of a project so if it's a movie it's at some point during um editorial when they're when they're editing the picture together you'll sit down with the director um and maybe a producer and the picture editor and go beat by beat uh uh, uh dramatic beat by beat not musical beat, uh, beat by beat and talk about the scene, the relationships, what is working, what isn't working, what are these characters into, what kind of sounds um, or or um, chord progressions might be nice for this relationship or these characters. Um, and then we'll take the picture and work on it, work on it, work on it, bat it back and forth, get notes, sometimes a lot of notes, sometimes not a lot of notes. I like the collaborative process and the fact that we kind of um, in in film scoring and TV scoring, you kind of get to whore around creatively and musically. You get to collaborate with a lot of different kinds of people on a lot of different kinds of um, in a lot in in a lot of different styles. That's very fun and appealing to me. Um, without without having to be stuck in a band situation, which is essentially a marriage that you, um, uh, that, that, that doesn't necessarily have an end date on it. It's really nice to have these finite, um, you know, dance partners, um, for, for film and TV. And so with something like Yellow Jackets, once they have an edit of the episode, we'll do a zoom spotting session with the producers again go through it talk about what is working what isn't working um the picture editors will especially at this point now that we have two seasons worth of original score they'll use original score from those two seasons as temporary placeholders so that when we're going through an episode we're at this point we're already hearing um, our music in there. And then we'll just talk about what's working, what isn't working and what it does or doesn't need. And then we'll just work on it for a week and a half, like really bang it out, send it to them, get notes, do revisions, and then it's on the air. That, that, one of the reasons I like TV is there's this very kind of rock and roll, punk rock pace to it. It's so fast. Um, you know, maybe there are two or three weeks between like, our seeing picture and your seeing the final wow. version on air, I, 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 give or take. It depends on the it depends on the show, but as opposed to a movie where it can be like a year, a year and a half, you know, um, between like when they start editing and when it finally comes out in theaters. Um, 
as opposed to making records or making songs, which is it's it's a whole other beast. So for me, um, I really like the different the sort of variations on process. I think they all really um, uh, help one another. Like when I'm doing too much of one thing, too much record song world, I start wilting. If I'm doing too much TV. I start going crazy because of the speed of it. If I'm doing only movies, that starts feeling, I don't know, a little fusty or something like that. So I really like kind of combining all of it at once. The wand is shedding on me. <laughs> I think it's a very understated art scoring because like you said, that music completely sets the tone for what's happening on the screen. Obviously, as you said, it's set in the background, but you can't exactly have like a romance scene and then have like you know you've got to have it spot on especially do you ever feel the pressure of that responsibility especially when you first started in this world oh yeah 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 <laughs> we definitely feel the pressure <laughs> that responsibility. especially if you're working on a project which sometimes happens it, it, it's not the case with uh yellow jackets or when i'm working with my friends from college david or tom um where you have, sort of have a shorthand and you know each other's tastes. But often, especially if it's a what's called a pilot TV show, which is um, the sort of sample episode for something that they then want to sell to a network to create a series out of, but maybe haven't quite figured out exactly what the tone is. And a whole lot of people um, are often thrown together one you know, there will be producers who are coming from a more corporate vantage point and then producers um, and directors who are coming from a more creative vantage point and then the um, the the editors and the screenwriters and the composers where people might not be on the same page yet about what the tone or personality of a project is, that can get very, very difficult. If Especially with music because everybody has... You know, we all have our own uh, imprints, I want to say, like music imprints on people. You have an experience and, you know, you're, you're, you're 11 years old or 14 years old and you have your first kiss and In Excess was playing when you, you know, when that happened. Another person might think that In Excess is literally... Um, the most insipid like dentist music they associate <laughs> it with like dentistry you know so it's the same thing with score like people's relationship to and response particularly to violin is so radically different um some directors that i work with hate violin because they associate it with emotional manipulation and treacly romantic um schmaltz but then other people for other people it might be like you know remind them of like their grandmother um who played violin or mm. you know going to the symphony it, it, it just really really depends and one of the fun parts and sometimes very very maddeningly frustrating parts of our job um is to get everybody on the same page tonally because everybody has such um, uh, personalized relationships and responses to um, chords 
styles of music, sounds of instruments. Um, you know, my dad beat me with an accordion. You can't use an accordion. And then another person's like, my father was the polka king. You know, it just is like, um, it's really fun. And it's very, very crazy, especially because, and also people's, people's language and vocabulary around music is completely personalized. I don't know why the idea of some you someone using an accordion for violence for that sound it really tickled me. There might be a good sound in that. Yeah, we use that. I don't know. I don't know what what genre movie that is, but I mean they already they already made the Weird Al Yankovic movie, so I guess we can't. That's true. Can't use it there. I was gonna say like black and white, but. I don't know. For some reason, a black and white, like a <laughs> silent film, that's the only noise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's good for a silent movie. Oh. <laughs> um, when it comes to actually acquiring the movies and the TV films, the TV films, oh my days, when it actually comes to the TV shows, even what I was trying yeah. to say, to actually score, like how would you actually acquire these jobs? Because obviously you've done like School of Rock and Role Models, you know, Reno 9-11, that sort of thing. Like, mm. How would you actually... For me, it's all relationships and 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 um, friendships or people I meet or or word of mouth. Not not one hundred percent. I have an agent and 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 they'll they'll, um, you know, woo employers occasionally, but mostly, you know, so Reno nine one one is Tom Lennon, Carrie Kenny, Ben Grant, who are my college friends. We've been working together since we were nineteen years old. Um, Wet Hot American Summer was David Wayne, Michael Showalter, who are life lifers for me. School of Rock came that was through the music supervisor. The music supervisor is sort of the o- oversees all things musical in a movie. So Randy Poster, who music supervised School of Rock, it's his job to make sure that all the deals are done and all of the licenses are um, above board and and in some cases making selections for songs on the song side of things. And then also um, oftentimes hiring the composer, suggesting composers to, um, to the director and then making sure that everything musical is working. So they're the sort of musical quarterback. Um, in the case of School of Rock, Shudder to Think, uh, uh, Randy Poster was the music supervisor on Velvet Goldmine. And we just had a great experience together. And so when School of Rock happened, he gave me a call and basically said, hey, there's this great Mike White, Jack Black movie. It's gonna, it's, I mean, he literally said something to the effect of, it's going to be a classic. It's a really magical kind of movie. And we need one song that's a power ballad that sounds kind of a little bit like Creed. And then there's going to be some score, but it's just going to be heavy rock score. It's fully in your wheelhouse um, and you're going to have a ball doing it. And then um, and then I worked with the kids when the when the project was over and they were doing publicity for it. So it was sort of the I, I was sort of the band leader. I would 
conduct band practice with the kids when Jack was busy doing other things and kind of interface between the parents because all of the kids' parents were also there and production, which was um, kind of like being a camp counselor and a, um, a family therapist. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to blow smoke here, but Heal Me, I'm Heartsick by No Vacancy in School of Rock <laughs> is genuinely, possibly the greatest fictional band song in the world. I know Thank people you. that love that song. It is, as the kids say today, an absolute banger. It is oh, a thanks, great, man. That makes great me feel song. so happy. That's I great. remember hearing it in the film for the first time because I, I used to, that like, 80s power ballads like sort of era is it's, yeah. it's what i love and i was just like oh god this i remember finishing the film and going who is this band these that's better be a real band and i was like son <laughs> of a bitch they're made up that's <laughs> my that's my favorite song some of some of my favorite kinds of songs to write for movies are the ones where you it it kind of is a little uncomfortable because you don't know whether it's serious or whether a joke is being played on you you're like, wait, is this, this isn't, this is real, right? I totally know. No, wait, this is a joke. <laughs> is the joke on me? You know? <laughs> it, it's just, it's just so damn good. I was like, I, I, when I was doing my research, I was like, he wrote that. He wrote the greatest fictional song ever. <laughs> like, oh my, and I know tons of people that love that song as well. That's so like, awesome. That makes me happy. Oh, it's so damn good. I was watching. We watched it last week because um, someone from Rolling Stones doing a, doing a like I don't know twentieth anniversary whatever it is, article about School of Rock, and I was talking to my family about it. And of course, I mean nobody doesn't like that movie. It's a. It's just. It's like the movie Grease. It just is. It's just perfect, and. So we started watching it and we're like, oh, we'll just like watch a little of it. And you can't just watch a little of it. It's like a bag <laughs> of potato chips. You're like, oh my God, just give me the whole thing. It's and it's and it just holds up. It's just, it's got so, it's got so much heart, so much purity to it. There was another thing on your credits that stood out to me, which I wanted to ask about as well. Is that you were a vocal coach on Anchorman. Yes, I, I, that that sounds like a bigger job than it actually was. Although that is true, I was I was in Los Angeles working with the kids from School of Rock who had some um, you know uh, like late night performances they were doing um, right around when School of Rock came out, and so they put production put my wife and me up at a hotel like somewhere on the sunset strip and we walked out and i was we were friends with paul rudd from the movie wet hot american summer and he was shooting anchorman and staying in the same hotel we just ran into each other in the hallway he was like oh my god dude i'm so happy i found you i was thinking about you because we the four leads or five leads from anchorman um, need to do a sort of barbershop quartet acapella choral version of Afternoon Delight. And um, <laughs> and we just need somebody to like break out the parts and do a vocal arrangement and then just like work with us to make sure everybody's got their parts down. Um, they're, they're all great singers. Like that whole cast are great singers. Paul's a great singer and, and Steve Carell's a great singer. So 
they really didn't need that much coaching. I just kind of broke it down, recorded a bunch of recorded me singing like four or five parts and 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 arranged it for them and then basically got to hang out in a trailer with the funniest men on earth and listen to them sing afternoon delight for an afternoon. <laughs> Oh, so that was the extent of my vocal coaching on that. But yes, I did get to do that. And it was a total treat. That is amazing. When I read it, I was like, why would they need a vocal coach on Anchorman? And that scene, even though it's one of the best scenes in the film, completely (laughs) skipped my mind. That is amazing. I can't hear that song without going, boo. I know. (laughs) I had never, and I grew up, you know, I grew up in the 70s. So, so probably when I was six or seven that song was popular and it's one of those <laughs> songs that works for kids because it's like oh afternoon delight it's like ice cream or you're just going for a walk in the daisies <laughs> and then and I I don't think I'd thought of it since I was seven or eight years old and so when I started listening to it, I was like oh my god they're just talking about like a quick fuck in the, in the afternoon. <laughs> it was great it was great. <laughs> like this is this is positively pornographic. <laughs> it's not okay. That is absolutely incredible. But you've actually been on camera as well as you played in the wedding band in "I Love You, Man." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sometimes Another I... absolutely great movie. Love I know. Movie. I love that movie. Um, sometimes my friends will throw me in their movies. Uh, there, there's a there's a, a great David Wayne movie called uh, Wanderlust, which takes place largely on a kind of modern hippie commune. And so there's this like roving band that's always playing in the background that that um, for which I was the the band leader, which is really really fun. And then um, there's some there's some gratuitous nudity and in wet hot american summer it's usually usually when my friends need somebody not anymore now that we're in our 50s but back in our 20s and or or back in our 30s when 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 they needed um a a willing nudist (laughs) who would call me (laughs) 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 got it all craig those those the calls have the calls have dwindled. Well, <laughs> yeah. Bastards! Yeah. What are they trying to say? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so I mean, we were talking earlier about how like you work and and scoring and stuff like that. It can affect people. People connect to it. They hear certain things. And but one thing that really amazed me is we were talking earlier about yellow jackets. And it's safe to say that a certain Canadian icon must have clearly been a big fan of the show because Alanis Morissette decided to drop some vocals on a song he wrote. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And and it was very sweet and um, felt appropriate and, and all in the family. When Jagged Little Pill came out in the mid-90s, I'm just going to connect a whole bunch of worlds here. So... Taylor Hawkins was Alanis's drummer in the 90s. And he was a huge fan of Pony Express record. He got in touch with the record label when Alanis was playing in New York at Jones Beach on that tour. Um, 
and invited us all to the show. We went to the show, or I went to the show. I don't remember if anybody else was with me. It was fucking great. She's amazing live. Her voice is extraordinary. And there was this unknown, this little unknown band called, who were great, called Radiohead, who was opening um, at that show. Right. <laughs> and so I remember meeting Alanis and hanging out with Taylor, who's just like an explosive, exquisite drummer who you, you can't not watch him. And loving Radiohead. And then didn't stay in touch with Alanis. But within the last couple of years, one of the guys in my kind of extended musician composer crew that I like to work with, his name's Mike Farrell. He's a piano player and an arranger and a wonderful guy. He became Alanis's piano player and maybe sort of co-musical director or something like that. He was helping Anna Warunker, my co-composer on Yellow Jackets, and I with some arrangements for this show tune that we did for episode seven of last season of Yellow Jackets. We were so busy working on the score, we didn't have time um, to do all the string arrangements and stuff. So Mikey came in and did it. And around the same time, I guess Alanis had gotten in touch with production, having no idea about like the connection with everybody, that it was this little all in the family kind of posse tribe. And um, said that she wanted to do something musical for the show and maybe even like act in it, although that wound up not panning out. And um, so she and Mikey, whom with whom we happened to be working at the time on a different Yellow Jackets thing, made this like crazy gothic power ballad version, cover version of Anna's and my theme song for Yellow Jackets. And um, so in that way that I always trust when things come up through friends or tribe or family, the kind of team, you know, again, going back to relationships being how things, how magical things happen. Um, it just kind of worked out and wound up being this wonderful thing. We didn't even have any contact with her. We literally just sent her um, uh, what are called the stems. So like, here's the bass part, here's the guitar part, here's the vocal part, here are the drums from our original theme recording. And she and Mikey just went to town. And then Mike um, sent us this MP3 just randomly one day. He's like, we're really psyched about this. You got to listen to it. And, and, uh, and it was a done deal. And it worked so beautifully in the in the episode, I thought, particularly in the have you seen it? Have you seen Yellow Jacket? It's on my list. Yeah. It's, it's on my list. I I've been told how good it is and it's on my list. So I will be watching it, don't worry. Oh, it's been... okay. Um, you know, it's a, if you it it it's intense, you know. And some people it's not for everybody. Um, but if it's for you, you're gonna love it. And uh the scene that Alanis is weird spooky covers and is really like um for me one of the highlights of of the season it was a treat that's amazing i will uh i will get back to you on it when i've seen it i will uh i'll drop yeah, you on very, very curious very curious what you think 
yeah, I, I really want to watch it as well. I'd heard, I'd already heard good things about it. I've just not got around to watching it, so it is on my yeah. list as well. I mean, like you've worked on so many bloody things. It is we can't sit here and list them all, especially with what time we're coming up to now. But is there any like particular projects you've worked on that you're just like extra proud of? You like, I did a damn good job on this project. Yeah, Yellow Jackets. Um, I would say Yellow Jackets, uh, High Art, which was one of Shutter to Think's first scores um obviously you know i have a, a a deep connection to all of the records that i make and i do a lot of meditation music now which is more like improvised choral ambient mm. ambient choral looping music which i love um i, I mean i really try and plug myself in completely to whatever I'm working on so that um I don't know I, I think it I think it comes from the band mentality and the songwriting um approach which is I need to love it first and then I trust that other people will connect with it obviously with with scoring it needs to serve the scene and the overall tone of the project and the director and and producer and whoever else um but i i'm a fan of most of the things that i've gotten to work on i've been very very fortunate i don't think i i don't think all composers have that relationship to things that they do and i think that the more you do it because it can be such a, a high volume of music that has to get made so fast it's easy to um it's easy to get worn out and sort of lose to to fall out of love or lose the spark but for me the 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 it's a priority to make sure that i'm in love with the music and feeling all the feelings that i want the audience to feel when they're watching it does it always work 100% of the time? No. Um, it's different than writing songs where you're on your own timeline and you can really work on something until it clicks. Um, sometimes you just got to get the music out there because the TV show is uh, airing in three days and you do the absolute best you can. And sometimes in retrospect, it's like, oh, oh, I thought that was good. <laughs> I mean, but usually, got, usually, like, it's pretty good batting average. You've got a hell of a personality, though, and quite a lot of charisma to do this sort of role. So I think the, you've, the, maybe from the roles you've had is because of who you are as well as a person. It's like, in the hour and a half we've been talking, like, I'm in love with you. So, it's oh, just, you know. You. <laughs> I feel the same way about the two. Hopefully <laughs> oh. we weren't on, on separate continents. I'll let my, I was going to say, I'll let my wife know, but, you know, there's a notion between... <laughs> it's fine, she'll be cool with it. <laughs> Yeah. She'll but, feel this. She'll yeah, feel exactly. This too. Yeah. She already is. She already <laughs> is. <It's> like... <laughs> um you have a podcast as well with with David Wayne, don't you? Called Wayne versus Wedron. No, that was actually just it was just a single. Yes, it's yes. Oh, it was a one-off. Oh. We did we did a one-off together. Uh, okay. Is it what did you not want to continue that or was it just let's do a one we got too much going on? Let's make a one-off yeah, thing and we'll that, go dude. from there. Yeah, that guy's no good. <laughs> No, I, I would I would love it. In fact, so David 
and the David and I, and there was a third of our kind of three musketeers from age four. His name's Stuart Blumberg, who's also um, a real charming cat and a screenwriter and director. I think the three of us should have a podcast, except, I don't know, we would probably, we would probably just annoy each other and the audience. <laughs> It's probably better just to like keep it in the friend realm instead of the like I would, collaboration realm. I would totally listen. I would totally be able to listen. <laughs> I bet it'd be great. I mean, I think a lot of people feel that way about podcasts. They'll go, oh, nobody wants to fucking listen to what we have to say. But like, we're nearly 100 episodes in and, you know, we just That's talk amazing. shit. Yeah, yeah. You, know I mean? you just say a bunch of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Actually, you know what I want to do? I want to do a podcast um, just talking to singers. So I, it, oh. I, I don't think that exists. And, and there's so many, I find singers and I mean, obviously I find singing fascinating, but I, I think singers are, um, are m largely misunderstood and maligned because um, everybody thinks that we're weirdos. When in fact, we're just um, trying to protect our instrument. <laughs> like we're on tour being like, everybody's like, diva. It's like, you you try singing every night and traveling into different, like, um, you know, environments and keeping your... <laughs> I can imagine something Frank, are you all right? Yeah. Why are you whispering at me? Just try to... <laughs> yeah. I know, there were, there were tours where I was like, you know, showing like having to write things on a notebook, and people were like, "You're an asshole." I'm like, I'm not an asshole. You just need to hang out with me, not on tour. <laughs> it's so funny because it's so true. I remember when I was younger, going to see a power metal band called Dragon Force and yeah. their support band. We went to an after show party, and the support band, the singer, was walking around with like a towel around his neck. Yeah. And people going like, up to him, I'm yeah. like, "Oh my god!" And he was just like, "Sorry, I'll take my butt." And everyone's like, "What?" dickhead who does he think he is oh, yeah. we're all so fans of his and he kind of bothered to talk to us yeah 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 <laughs> or you or are you above it oh yeah huh. <laughs> people people in bands it, it was actually um i i felt vindicated because nathan larson the guitar player in shutter to think the second half of shutter to think um had a sort of solo project called hot one in the early 2000s and I remember he called me from tour and he was like, dude, I have to apologize for, you know, six years of being a dick to you about you being a freak on tour about your voice. I thought you were being a diva and I haven't been able to talk for like a week and a half and I'm in the middle of a tour and I don't really know what I'm going to do. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's what, it is. <laughs> that's what it's like. You don't get to hang out. You don't get to have fun with your friends. Everybody's there to party and they want to like go have dinner with you in really loud bars and restaurants. And you have to like politely excuse yourself. Oh, the, the tales of being famous. Just yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 Last question from myself. Is there anything that you're currently working on or you've got coming out that you can talk about? Yeah, I have a new uh, solo record coming out in September called the dream dreaming and how can i describe it i think it's pretty poppy but you know it still feels like one of my records 
when I say poppy, um, my wife, who's like very much a kind of 80s girl, you know, U2 Smith's cure mm. type gal, she loves it. I mean, she likes all my stuff, but she particularly likes this one. So I, so I think it's sort of more maybe traditionally songy in a certain way. Um, I'm very excited for it. And putting out a score that I did with a friend of mine named Jarek Bischoff for a movie that my friend Mike Jan, also a college friend from the state, directed called um, Organ Trail. It's a Western horror movie. And I'm very, very excited about the score for it. Um, we're just working out, you know, whatever contractual stuff needs to be done and then it'll be up hopefully in the next month or two amazing i don't think there's any western horrors there i can't think no, of any no it's its own thing it's cool i don't think I'm you intrigued. can stream it yet but i think pretty soon it'll it'll be up and up okay i'll just keep my eyes peeled for that little bad yeah. boy um last thing from me um <laughs> Did you ever think that when you first started out at, you know, was it six, seven years old when you first discovered Elton John and Kiss and that sort of thing? Yeah. Did you ever think that this is where you'd be today, scoring TV, scoring movies, you know, having all these albums and records out, et cetera? I don't know. Um, I, I think that aside from my hair loss, if I could see through a magic mirror from when I was seven or nine years old, I would be thrilled with everything except my hair. Um. <laughs> And I would be like, oh, that's not exactly how I imagined it, but that's cool. Way to go. <laughs> um, that said, probably by the time I was like 16 or 17, I, I could have written down on a piece of paper what I hoped to be doing, and it would look a lot like this. But the yeah. experience of our lives versus the like dream of our lives when we're little, it's very different texture. No, I think kids have a massive imagination anyway, don't they? So, yeah. you know, he probably wanted to just do a lot of spinning and playing with balls, I suppose, when you're, when you're like five or six. Just want to spin all the time, yeah, and play yeah, with them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much where I'm at. But that is a testament to you as a person, sir, because you just said that at 16, 17, could I look forward and thought I was doing this? Yeah, because it's what I wanted to do. So that shows yeah. that you never gave up on that. And no matter what things came in your way, and let's be honest, there was a, brilliant few bloody obstacles in yeah. the way you overcame them all and you did it and if i was wearing a hat i'd tip it to you my friend because that is thank amazing. you thank you so much amazing, that, that that that's actually really nice to hear because when we're in the middle of our lives i think it's it's easy to forget that that mm. perseverance that perseverance piece and it's like oh look we're we're actually making good on what we said we were going to do and we're doing it cool <laughs> that's amazing Craig, before we let you go, sir, any plugs, social medias, anything you want people to go and check out? I'm just um, on, well, I mean, I, I guess I don't do that many socials, but um, Instagram, Twitter, teeny bit of TikTok. I'm just Craig Wedren, at Craig Wedren. Very easy. Easy to find. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on. Such Craig. a pleasure talking to you guys. It's been so much fun. It's been great. Oh, Craig. I could talk to you for hours, sir. I could talk this to you for hours. I love talking to you guys. Hopefully we'll we, get to like hang out at some point when one of us are somewhere that the others are. Yeah. 
a hundred percent phenomenal. A hundred percent down. I'm also thinking that maybe we should schedule some point down the line for a second, a second go at this. Oh, and yeah, uh, just catch up. Yeah, hundred percent catch up and see what's been going on. So, but yeah, uh we'll have we'll have some beer soon, sir. It'd be absolutely wonderful. Yeah, that sounds real good. Uh, Amazing. <laughs> I'm gonna Thank go so do much. that right now. I'm gonna go do that right now while I spin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure some mud around here somewhere <laughs> as well. <laughs> Incredible. Thank you. Thanks. Have, so a, have an absolutely have amazing day. day, Craig. Look after yourself. All right. You take care. I guess it's nighttime there. Have a good night. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we will. I'm going to work. Thank you very much. See you later, my friend. Take care. Bye bye. What an absolutely fantastic interview. What an incredible life and career this man has had. And from this interview, I was so blown away by the idea of Yellow Jackets. I've smashed out both seasons since we did this. And you're right, Craig. <laughs> Incredible show. Great work, Jay. Absolutely phenomenal. Craig, thank you so much again for taking the time out to sit and talk to us. We massively appreciate it. And we really hope that you all enjoyed listening to it as much as we did recording it. <laughs>